This is Marshall Weiss, editor and publisher of the Dayton Jewish Observer, and I'm happy to be with you this week for the Jewish News Hour. This week we'll start off reading from JTA. Um, as we are recording this, the announcement from the Supreme Court just came out overturning Roe versus Wade. The first article from JTA, after Shabbat, after the Sabbath, we will act. American Jews gear up for wave of post-Roe activism by Ron Campeas, Washington. An array of Jewish groups across the country are kick-starting into action to protest and potentially challenge the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, the landmark 1973 case that has enshrined the right to an abortion in the United States. The 6-3 decision released Friday has many Jewish activists buzzing about how to respond to the bombshell ruling that they find a major setback to women's rights and, in some cases, an infringement on religious Jewish law. The National Council of Jewish Women, a Jewish women's rights group founded in 1893, said it would hold a vigil, a virtual vigil Friday afternoon before launching into actions next week. That would include training Jewish groups on how to mount challenges. Today is a time to mourn, said NCJW CEO Sheila Katz. After Shabbat, we will act. The decision also portends profound differences among Orthodox groups over how to function in a post-Roe world. The Haredi Orthodox, Agudath Israel of America, welcomed the decision, while the Orthodox Union stood by its statement in May when a draft version of the decision was leaked, saying that the umbrella group could neither mourn nor celebrate the reversal of the 1973 ruling. But most American Jews back abortion access, and Jewish, Jewish groups have already taken steps to counter the decision after the draft decision was leaked. Katz said her group would launch briefings for Jewish organizations on the ramifications of assisting women seeking an abortion state by state. We can't provide legal advice to organizations, but we can recommend that organizations seek out legal advice particularly if they are in states where abortion has been overturned, she said, referring to a number of states that have enacted trigger bans on abortion to go into effect once the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade. In some of these states, there's legal ramifications for trying to help somebody have an abortion, and everybody should know what that looks like in their states and how they're impacted. The Women's Rabbinic Network, a constituent of the Reform Movement Central Conference of American Rabbis, in a statement pledged continued support for women seeking an abortion and for those providing the service. We fully support those who have sought and are seeking abortion care and will continue to advocate for a world where they are able to do so safely, wherever they are, without fear of retribution, it said. We pray for the safety and well-being of the abortion care providers and health care workers who will be forced to decide what they are willing to risk in order to serve their patients and communities and places where abortion is now illegal. Rabbi Jill Jacobs, CEO of the liberal rabbi activist group Trua tweeted, Remember that when Roe v. Wade came out, the right wing refused to accept their loss. They spent 50 years laser-focused on unlosing. We must do the same in order to protect lives and bodily autonomy. The road will be long, but we cannot give up or turn away. 
While there is broad religious Jewish objection to abortion in cases without serious cause, Jewish law prioritizes the life of the mother. Some commentators have already noted how this could allow for Jewish-based challenges to the state abortion bans that will quickly snap into place. A synagogue in Florida this month sued the state to stop a new anti-abortion law from going into effect in July. The suit is filed on the grounds of religious discrimination. A number of Orthodox groups and figures argue that liberal Jewish groups overstate the protections Jewish law offers to pregnant women. These groups argue that state laws with exemptions considering the life of the mother are adequate and that abortion under Roe v. Wade was constituted devalues life. The statement from Aguda, the umbrella group of uh, four Haredi Orthodox synagogues and organizations, wholeheartedly endorsed the Roe v. Wade reversal as a celebration of life. Agudath Israel of America welcomes this historic development, a statement said. We pray that today's ruling will inspire all Americans to appreciate the moral magnitude of the abortion issue and to embrace a culture that celebrates life. Yet even among the Orthodox, there were differences and a degree of anxiety at what the overturn of Roe v. Wade could bring. Jewish scholars across the religious, uh, the religious spectrum agree that mental health should precipitate an exemption to abortion bans, although they disagree about what may constitute a mental health crisis. Not every state includes a mental health exemption for pregnant women seeking an abortion, and at least one, Georgia, explicitly excludes it. Some Orthodox scholars hold that rape triggers an exemption. A number of states also lack an exemption for rape. Jewish law prioritizes the life of the pregnant mother over the life of the fetus, such that where the pregnancy critically endangers the physical health or mental health of the mother, an abortion may be authorized if not mandated by halakha and should be available to all women irrespective of their economic status, the Orthodox Union said in its May statement. Rabbi Moshe Hauer, the Orthodox Union's Executive Vice President, said in an interview that states excluding mental health from the abortion calculus, as Georgia does, would be a cause for concern. Absolutely, when there will be, a me when there will be mental health issues that impact the life of the mother, abortion should be allowed, and yes, in that event, we would be concerned about that. But he added that the court's decision was an opportunity to consider the value of life in a number of spheres. You know there are definitely concerns, he said. But there may also be an opportunity here to shift the discussion of life to a more responsible space. National Council of Jewish Women was also planning a rally in Washington, D.C. when Congress reconvenes after the summer. Their rally in May attracted more than a thousand protesters. Democrats have said they will make the repeal of Roe v. Wade an issue in the midterm elections. Katz also wants Jewish organizations to set an example by giving women reproductive leave that would accommodate the extended time needed to get an abortion that the reversal of Roe v. Wade would trigger. Within a week or so of the leaked decision in May, the NCJW almost immediately entered a partnership with the National Abortion Federation, which raises funds for women who want abortions. That process is set to become more expensive in states with restrictive laws ready to kick in, requiring women seeking abortions to take time off work and pay for travel to where it is permitted.
the funds for NCJW uh, raises the funds that NCJW raises for the National Abortion Federation will help people across state lines. It'll help fund abortions for people who can't afford it, Katz said. Within minutes of the court decision, the Jewish Community Relations Council of Greater Washington said that it was ready to assist such actions. Maryland, one of the JCRC's constituent states, has liberal abortion laws and is the closest state to a number of states that do not. We will work in coalition to ensure that the state is prepared to welcome and serve the thousands of additional women who will travel to our state to seek medical care and exercise reproductive rights, the JCRC said in a statement. The Washington, D.C. JCRC said it would push back against further restrictions on abortion access in Virginia, and it would lobby to keep Congress, which has a degree of jurisdiction over the District of Columbia, from imposing abortion restrictions on an overwhelmingly liberal population there that rejects such restrictions. We will also mobilize our local Jewish community at the grassroots level, connecting synagogues and individuals to meaningful opportunities to support women seeking abortions in our region, the D.C. chapter's statement said. Such grassroots initiatives may soon proliferate in Jewish communities. We are outraged by this decision, which we do not believe represents the will of the people, nor is in the best interest of the country, said the Jewish Council for Public Affairs, the umbrella body for Jewish public policy groups. And next, we'll go over to the foreword. What does Jewish law say about abortion? Like most questions of halakha, it depends on who you ask. By Louis Keen. When it comes to abortion, the Jewish legal source material is relatively thin, but what it does say and how has it, and how has it formed Jewish opinions on the topic. These questions gained new urgency after the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade, the 1973 decision to legalize abortion nationwide. While the vast majority of American Jews, about four in five, according to the Pew Research Center, supports abortion rights, the Jewish legal view on abortion differs depending on denomination and even then on whom you ask. And though activists on either side of the abortion debate tend to divide the country into pro-life and pro-choice camps, the Jewish approach to the question is more nuanced. For example, non-Orthodox Jewish denominations, which broadly support a woman's right to an abortion, don't necessarily ground the position in Jewish legal view of a woman's bodily autonomy. Likewise, while many American Orthodox Jewish authorities rule that Jewish law prohibits abortion, they do not base their interpretation on the belief often propounded by Christian pro-life groups that life begins at conception. Writing about abortion, Jewish scholars look at the halakha or Jewish legal underpinnings constructed their views from a variety of different sources discussing other things. Abortion is a big question socially, but in the Talmud there's not much direct material on the topic, said Chaim Simon the chair in Jewish law at Villanova University's Wigder School of Law. It comes up sideways. Where everyone agrees is on the edges, on one end that abortion is at best a last resort, and on the other that it is required if the mother's life is in immediate danger. The, legal, the Jewish legal opinion begins with a verse in Exodus 21 that institutes a financial pen penalty against a man who injured a pregnant woman, causing her to miscarry. 
As Rashi, the 11th century commentator, notes, that the consequence is only monetary indicates the Torah's view that a murder has not been committed. Modern scholars extrapolate from Rashi that abortion is at worst not a capital crime. A pair of 20th century Orthodox rabbis debating the permissibility of abortion when the child will be born with Tay-Sachs disease, a terminal genetic illness, split on the interpretation of this passage and other Talmudic sources. Rabbi Moshe Feinstein, widely considered the leading American halachic authority of the late 20th century, said that the monetary punishment did not necessarily prove that killing an unborn child was not murder. In other words, that the seriousness of the crime could not be derived from its punishment. In his view, abortion would be prohibited even with the knowledge that the child would be born with a life expectancy of just a few years. But an Israeli contemporary of Feinstein, Rabbi Eliezer Waldenberg, permitted an abortion in that case. He cited a Talmudic discussion of a fetus who is endangering the life of a mother, which the sages say can be destroyed limb by limb until the moment the baby's head emerges from the womb. Waldenberg relies on this source to rule that before the baby's head emerges, the fetus is not considered a person, and therefore abortion is not murder. Yet even Waldenberg, who was also more expansive than Feinstein in his view of what threatens a woman's well-being, believed those guidelines were to be used cautiously and on a case-by-case basis. If someone said we have five kids and used birth control and it didn't work, Waldenberg would not permit an abortion, Simon said. The divergence of orthodox opinion on the matter has produced an unusual trend, Simon said, in which some rabbis who generally follow Feinstein will direct congregants seeking halakhic guidance on abortion to a rabbi who holds by Waldenberg. Other orthodox women will use informal channels to find out which rabbi is more likely to give them the guidance they are looking for. In spite of the prevailing opinion within Haredi orthodoxy, that's ultra-orthodoxy, that abortion is only permitted in the case of immediate risk to the mother, an umbrella Haredi organization has weighed in against abortion bans. Blanket bans on abortion, to be sure, would deprive Jewish women of the ability to act responsibly in cases where abortion is halakhically required, wrote Rabbi Avi Shafran of Agudath Israel in 2019. And so, what Orthodox groups like Agudath Israel of America, for which I work, have long promoted is the regulation of abortion through laws that generally prohibit the unjustifiable killing of fetuses while protecting the right to abortion in exceptional cases. Other Orthodox leaders rushed to distance themselves from the religious right that has been at the forefront of the pro-life movement. Orthodox Judaism's view of abortion does not align with the Catholic Church or the Christian right of today, Rabbi uh, Rabbi Sarah Hurwitz, head of Yeshivat Maharat, an Orthodox women's seminary, said in an email. While there is a range of opinions in this sources, the halachic system shows tremendous compassion for the circumstances of the mother, family and viability, and health of the fetus. I have had the sad fortune of helping several families navigate their decision around abortion. Halakha recognizes that for some families, an abortion is a necessary choice. 
the Rabbinic Assembly, the International Organization of Conservative Rabbis, codified in 1983 a ruling that a fetus does not have legal status as a human until it is born, clearing the halachic path to permitting abortion. In addition to the Exodus verse, the ruling cites the halacha that a pregnant woman who converts does not need to separately convert the child after birth. It is said in that in the sense uh, it is said that in the case of the Tay-Sachs child, abortion would be permitted not out of mercy for the baby but out of compassion for the mother. In its seven-page decision, however, the RA made clear that abortion was anathema to Jewish concepts of the sanctity of life. Abortions to ensure the mother's quality of life, it said, were impermissible. In an interview with Rabbi Bradley Shavit Artson, Dean of the Ziegler School of Rabbinic Studies at American Jewish University. He said that a shift toward deference to women's autonomy had occurred in the conservative movement in the decades since that ruling, precipitated in part by the now widespread ordination of women and LGBTQ Jews. The idea that men should decide on women's behalf is increasingly intolerable, Artson said, conservative movement, we become more and more aware of the right of people to self-advocacy and self-determination. Additionally, he said, as the American religious right increased political pressure to restrict abortion, conservative organizations leaned further into advocacy in the other direction to protect their religious freedom. By and large, the textual basis for the conservative understanding is the same as that of the orthodox. Only on the question of which circumstances permit a woman to have an abortion, whether concern for the mother's well-being extends to her psychological and emotional state, do the two movements diverge. In Judaism, a fetus is not regarded as an independent being. It is part of the body of the person carrying it, wrote Rabbi Danya Ruttenberg in, a, in an explanatory post, citing the same Mishnah as Waldenberg's Tay-Sachs ruling. The reform movement, which holds that a woman's bodily autonomy is a matter of kavod habriot, the Jewish principle of respect for life, has been advocating for reproductive rights for decades. Inveighing against the George W. Bush administration ban on late-term abortions, Rabbi David Ellenson, a national leader of the reform movement and chancellor emeritus of Hebrew Union College, Jewish Institute of Religion, said in 2003 that Jewish religious tradition surely accords the fetus status as potential life. However, Judaism does not regard the status attached to the fetus as potential life as morally equivalent to the condition enjoyed by the mother as actual life. That position was echoed by Mara Nathan, senior rabbi of Temple Bethel, a reform synagogue in San Antonio, who cited the same section in Exodus considered by Orthodox Poskim or legal authorities. Nathan said the reform movement viewed abortion as a human right and she anticipated universal condemnation from the movement's umbrella organizations. No one says that using abortion as a form of birth control is an appropriate choice, Nathan said, but the emphasis from the reform perspective is on a woman's right to choose, women's autonomy. They should be given the freedom as human beings to make a decision about their own health and their own bodies. And next, keeping with the same topic, we will go over to the newly distributed and published issue of Hadassah Magazine, the July issue. And this is a feature from 
a new book by Letty Cotton Pergrebin, Abortion Before Roe, I Was Ready to Kill Myself. I seem to have missed the memo on contraception, an ignorance partly attributable to my deceased mom not being there to explain ovulation, and partly to the fact that I trusted street myths like, you can get pregnant from sperm on a toilet seat, but you can't get pregnant if you do it standing up. Had mom lived, I probably would not have confided in her. Anyway, talking about sex would have embarrassed us both. Like many Jewish mothers of her generation, her medical specialty was constipation, and her all-purpose cure was a warm water enema. Everything else in the physical realm fell beyond her purview, all of which explains why I was dumb enough to have sex without a condom and get pregnant in 1958, the fall of my senior year at Brandeis University. So, at that point, all I knew about abortion was it was illegal, and it cost hundreds of dollars, money I did not have. So despite being paralyzed with fear and shame and anticipating his deep approval, I told my father, a proudly pragmatic but emotionally unavailable lawyer. I told him I was pregnant and I wanted an abortion. He didn't try to talk me out of it. He didn't ask me who the boy was. He didn't lecture or scold me. Neither did he comfort me. He just told me he would take care of it. I had no idea how. Maybe there was a Jewish mafia in Queens, New York, where I grew up, but he found a gynecologist not far from his apartment in Jamaica who performed the procedure in the dead of night. It cost $350, that would be $3,500 in today's money, and I paid him back every cent from my, hour, from my hourly wage, working for Rabbi Irving Yitz Greenberg, then the rabbi at Brandeis Hillel. For the remaining 25 years of my father's life, neither of us ever mentioned that episode again. It would have shamed us both. In 1991, I went public with my illegal abortion in a column published in the New York Times. I intended to rebut those who, without regard for our bodies, health, feelings, or circumstances, insist that women carry an unwanted pregnancy to term, like a broodmare, then give the baby up for adoption. What I did not admit in that column, or anything else I've written in the last half century, was that in the spring of my senior year, six months after the first abortion, I was pregnant again. Going back to my father, or the gynecologist, in Jamaica was out of the question. I was supposed to have my life under control. I was supposed to be a smart girl. Graduation was a few weeks away. I had a full-blown panic attack. How could I make the same mistake twice? In my world, nice Jewish girl was not a cliché was an edict. A nice Jewish girl was expected to pick up her college diploma with an engagement ring on her finger and an intact hymen. A pregnant nice Jewish girl was an oxymoron, the mother, so to speak, of all Shandas. I'd heard stories about girls being spirited out of town before they could show and kept out of sight until after they delivered, their parents having invented an elaborate story to cover for their daughter's half-year absences. Arlene is taking a semester abroad. Laura won a scholarship to a school out west. After giving birth in secret and a discreetly arranged adoption, the daughter returned home, her reputation unsullied, her appearance unchanged, and none were the wiser. 
The alternative to that scenario, giving birth and keeping the child, was unthinkable. While the boy in question was rarely identified by name, the girl was disgraced. Her child was a momzer, incorrectly translated as bastard, which in those days wasn't just a swear word, but the term used for a baby born out of wedlock. My unwanted pregnancies were far and away the most shameful secrets of my youth. I didn't confide in anyone in my family, not my married sister Betty, who was 14 years older than I, or my married aunts or female cousins, most of whom had multiple children and presumably knew a thing or two about sex. I couldn't tell them because in my eyes they were moral exemplars and I was a scarlet woman. The idea that any of my upstanding female relatives might excuse my transgression, much less know where to find an abortion doctor, was beyond my imagination. Much later on, I discovered from Betty that the three women closest to me in the world, my adored sister, mother, and grandmother, had all had abortions. The, revela the revelation was not just shocking, it was heart-rending, infuriating, and life-changing. It taught me that when it comes to abortion or any issue important to women, shame and secrecy are self-defeating. Not confiding in intimate family members and friends to protect my nice Jewish girl image cheated me of the benefits of their love, wisdom, experience, and counsel. But at that time, rather than face their judgment, I decided I would kill myself no access to a weapon or lethal drug and being too squeamish to slash my wrists, I narrowed my options to leaping off the Bronx Whitestone Bridge or jumping in front of a subway train. My roommate, Selma Shapiro, noticed my distress, my distress, kept hounding me to tell her what was wrong. Finally, I blurted out the truth. She let me cry on her shoulder and walked me downstairs to the quarters of our dorm counselor, Liesl Judge, whose day job was coaching the Brandeis women's fencing team, but who also served as an unshakable, unflappable confidant to female students. Liesl comforted me without making a big deal about it. She said I wasn't a bad person, I just needed to get measured for a diaphragm. The next morning, she plugged into an underground network of abortion whisperers and directed me not to a seedy back-alley abortionist with dirt under his fingernails, but to a licensed physician, the saintly, soon-to-be-legendary Dr. Robert Spencer. I called for an appointment, trembling with anxiety. Dr. Spencer's plain-spoken nurse told me what to expect of the procedure and what to pack for my overnight stay at the doctor's clinic in Ashland, Pennsylvania, where I would be observed post-op. Oh, and one more thing. Should I have a car accident? get stopped for any reason on the New Jersey or Pennsylvania turnpikes. She said I was to tell the trooper I was a patient of Dr. Spencer's, and he, the officer, would let me go with a warning or arrange for my car to be towed and alert the clinic that someone needed to come pick me up. That sounded bizarre, but the nurse was so matter-of-fact, I just took down her instructions. Fortunately, Selma drove me to Ashland without encountering law enforcement. But for years afterward, I heard parallel accounts from other women who had been Dr. Spencer's patients, several of whom claimed to know why his name worked as a get-out-of-jail-free card. Apocryphal or not, the story was that the good doctor had once saved the life of a trooper's daughter who was near death after a botched kitchen table procedure. And since that time, the 
officer's colleagues up and down the highways in both states had been protecting Dr. Spencer and his patients, and, when necessary, sending their own wives and daughters to his clinic. By the time he died, Dr. Spencer had performed more than 100,000 safe abortions in his spotless clinic. In June 1963, five years after my second abortion, I met the man who would become my husband, and within three months of our first date, we were engaged. Nothing required me to fess up. I knew Selma would never tell, but given how abortion was reviled back then, I felt it morally unconscionable to begin our life together without confessing my shameful secret. I announced to my fiancé that I had to tell him something that might make him change his mind about me. At that point, the thought of losing him unleashed torrents of sobs so convulsive I could barely continue. He waited, heard me out, then took me in his arms. None of that matters, he said. All that matters is us and our future. We were married three months later. That was 58 years and three wanted children ago. I will be forever grateful to Selma, a lifelong friend, to Liesel, my dorm counselor who died in 2017 at the age of 101, and above all to the non-judgmental Dr. Spencer who, risking his career and worse, safely terminated my inadvertent pregnancy. It was his commitment to women's autonomy, not to the state or someone else's religious beliefs, that allowed me to graduate with my class, move on with my life, and wait until I was ready to settle down with a loving mate and establish a stable home in which our children could be welcomed, cherished, and nurtured to adulthood. Dr. Spencer's clinic was pristine. He and his nurse attended to me with the utmost sensitivity and respect. Yet, I have never gotten over the indignity of the clandestine, the terror, the, and loneliness, the shame. Had abortion been legal then, I could have been spared all that. Were sexually active young women not branded as trollops who disgraced their families and brought shame on the Jewish people, I would not have come so close to killing myself. I kept that chapter of my life hidden from those closest to me because abortion was scandalous and ruinous, not to mention dangerous. Thousands of women lost their lives to bungled illegal procedures, self-induced abortions, knitting needles, lie, throwing themselves down a flight of stairs, or suicide. Because their parents, husbands, and friends were too ashamed to admit how and why those women died, and too timid to advocate for reform, it took the feminist movement and a Supreme Court decision to give us the right to control our own bodies. Post Roe v. Wade, my daughters and granddaughters grew up different world, one in which most women were free to determine their own futures, unshackled to state intervention in their reproductive lives. Clearly, that world is coming to an end, and that constitutional right, constantly challenged, amended, and eroded, has vanished. Letty Potin Kupogrebin is a writer, activist, and founding editor of Ms. Magazine. This article is an adapted excerpt from the forthcoming Shonda, a memoir of shame and secrecy. And now back to JTA. Boston City Council member walks back tweet about letting the Zionists shake you down by Andrew Lappin. A Democratic member of Boston City Council said she should have known better after a, a tweeting an attack on Zionists after a federal court upheld an Arkansas law prohibiting Israel boycotts. 
Y'all are letting the Zionists shake you down, Counselor Kendra Lara initially tweeted Thursday. She later deleted the tweet after receiving criticism, including from the director of the New England Anti-Defamation League. In a subsequent series of tweets, Lara said she had been responding to the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals ruling that upheld an Arkansas law allowing the state to compel contractors to sign a statement promising not to boycott Israel. The ruling had been celebrated by some pro-Israel groups, but free speech and press freedom advocates warned it threatened the fundamental component of constitutionally protected speech. Lara also acknowledged that her tweet's use of the phrase shake them down reinforces anti-Semitic tropes about Jewish people. Without formally apologizing, she wrote that she should have known better during a time when we're seeing alarming rates of violence against Jewish people and appeared to credit Boston University professor Benjamin Siegel for advising her on her phrasing, though she tagged an ABC News reporter by the same name instead. A member of the Democratic Socialists of America and the first woman of color to represent her district in Boston City Council, Lara took office earlier this year. She previously held a senior position at Resist, a nonprofit co-founded by influential Jewish left-wing and pro-Palestinian activist Noam Chomsky. Lara added that conflating anti-Zionism with anti-Semitism will ultimately prevent us from being in true solidarity with both Jewish people and Palestinians. Jewish groups and anti-Semitism watchdogs in the Boston area had in recent weeks accused some pro-Palestinian activists of anti-Semitism after an anonymous collective posted a map linking diverse Jewish institutions to the colonization of Palestine and other harms. Next from JTA, landmark survey of Jewish LA reveals an increasingly diverse and engaged community by Asaf Shalev and Jackie Hajdenberg. When the results of the new population survey of Jewish Los Angeles came in, Rabbi Noah Farkas was stunned by the data on Jewish identity and affiliation. Like many community leaders, the CEO of the Jewish Federation of Greater Los Angeles has long heard warnings about a decline in Jewish involvement and a gradual shrinking of the community. But the data told Farkas that the opposite was happening. Younger Jews in the Los Angeles area might be moving away from the denominations that dominated in previous generations, but they are more likely than their elders to be engaged in Jewish life. That includes discussing Jewish topics, studying Jewish texts, and consuming Jewish media. Young people in the survey are also more likely to mark Shabbat. What surprised me the absolute most is that a younger demographic is more engaged in Jewish life in almost every category than an older demographic, Farkas told JTA in an interview. They might not be considered uh, themselves Reform Jews, Conservative Jews, Orthodox Jews, as denominational categories of identity seem to be fading, but they do Jewish activity by and large more than the people who are 55 plus. It was a total shocker to me. The study of Jewish LA is the community's first demographic survey in a generation. Spearheaded by the city's Jewish Federation and funded by an array of partners, the study was announced Wednesday and will be released in stages throughout the summer. With an estimated 565,000 Jews living in 294,000 households in the area, the community has grown by 9% since the last survey in 1997. 
area has the second highest number of Jews in the United, in the United States after New York City. One particular focus of the study was on diversity of race, ethnicity, language, and national origins. About half of Jewish households include someone, not necessarily Jewish, who was born abroad or whose parents were born abroad, chiefly from Latin America, Israel, Iran, and the former Soviet Union. Nearly 20% identify as Sephardi or Mizrahi. About 6% identify as Jews of color, but for children the number is 9%, suggesting that the overall number will increase over time. While LA's Jewry has been less white and Ashkenazi than other cities for decades, the future of Jewish Los Angeles is even more diverse, Farkas said. In line with Los Angeles's overall geography, the Jewish community is spread out across a vast area. But in two areas where they are most concentrated, the western San Fernando Valley and West LA, Jews make up about 25% of the population. Health and well-being were another focus of the study, with mental health services identified as one of the most significant needs in the community, especially among young adults. Meanwhile, a portion of the community is struggling financially, and an equal portion is wealthy. The study divides the population into five categories of financial well-being. While only 1% said they cannot make ends meet, an additional 18% are just managing to make ends meet, about 60% have enough or extra money, while a fifth of Los Angeles Jews said they were well off. The study is intended to serve both a general audience and leaders in the community, according to Farkas. We are providing tools to the Jewish community to know itself and to help institutions evaluate their work and think about who, our, uh, who are our people so we know how best to serve them, he said. In a data-driven world, we need good, relevant data to do this. While this survey examined Los Angeles's unique population, there were two other major recent efforts at documenting the Jewish community in the United States. The results of these kinds of demographic studies can have political and other broad ramifications, as demonstrated by the 2020 Pew Research Study on American Jews, which found an increase in the number of Jewish Republicans. A survey from the Jews of Color Initiative found that 80% of the Jews of color who participated have experienced discrimination in Jewish settings. Carried out by a research team from the Cohen Center for Modern Jewish Studies at Brandeis University and NORC at the University of Chicago, the study was based on surveys with 3,767 households between June and September 2021. Researchers contacted a random sample of households in the Los Angeles area via email, mail, and telephone. And next from JTA, BDS movement disavows Boston Project mapping Jewish groups as some in Congress push for a federal investigation into its use by Andrew Lappin. The global boycott divestment sanctions movement targeting Israel has disavowed a controversial website mapping Boston area Jewish groups a day after lawmakers urged a federal investigation of the project's potential to be used by extremist groups. The announcement by the BDS movement on Wednesday aimed to distance the group from the Mapping Project, an anonymous collective of Boston-area pro-Palestinian activists. The project lists the names and addresses of Massachusetts Jewish groups, including schools, community funds, and synagogue organizations, that it claims are promoting local institutional support for the colonization of Palestine and other harms. 
The Palestinian BDS National Committee, the broadest coalition leading all the leading the global BDS movement for Palestinian rights, has no connection to and does not endorse the mapping project in Boston, Massachusetts, the BDS movement said in a statement posted to its official Twitter account. Endorsement of this project by any group affiliated with the BDS movement conflicts with this affiliation. The collective statements, uh, statement seems to be in reference to BDS Boston, which has enthusiastically shared a link to the mapping project and upon its initial release earlier this month and identified the group as our friends at the mapping project. This led several media outlets, Jewish groups, and politicians to identify the mapping project as a BDS initiative. In a letter to BDS Boston jaded, dated June 20th and obtained by the Jewish Journal's Aaron Bandler, the broader BDS movement urged the Boston group to stop promoting the mapping project, which it said presents a substantial risk to the movement because of its targeting of institutions and individuals. BDS also accused BDS Boston of running afoul of BDS guidelines by promoting messaging indirectly advocates for armed resistance and associating with groups that do. On its website, the mapping project calls for resistance in all its forms. Mahmoud Nawaja, Director, uh, General Coordinator of the BDS National Committee, told BDS Boston to either stop promoting the mapping project or remove BDS from its group name. Among the politicians who associated the mapping project with BDS directly, were the 37 members of Congress, uh, led by the staunchly pro-Israel Democrat Josh Gottheimer of New Jersey and Republican Don Bacon of Nebraska, who signed a letter Tuesday urging an investigation of the use of the mapping project by extremist organizations. The letter was addressed to Attorney General Merrick Garland, Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas, and FBI Director Christopher Wray, and it claimed the mapping project was associated with the BDS movement. We fear that this map may be used as a roadmap for violent attacks by supporters of the BDS movement against the people and entities listed therein, the letter says, while noting that the FBI is already tracking developments. Signatories included some of Congress's most vocal pro-Israel voices on both sides of the aisle, including Representatives Haley Stevens, Richie Torres, and Dan Moiser, as well as freshman Democrat Chantel Brown, who won her close Ohio race last year with the help of pro-Israel groups. The letter followed an earlier round of condemnations from mostly Massachusetts politicians, including both of the state's Democratic senators and progressive squad member Representative Ayanna Presley. Local Jewish groups, including the New England Anti-Defamation League and Jewish Community Relations Council of Greater Boston, who were named on the project's website, said the project was a deliberate effort to target Jews and could encourage anti-Semitic extremist acts. In the same statement, in which it condemned the mapping project, the BDS movement also condemned the cynical use of this project as a pretext for repressive attacks on the Palestine Solidarity Movement, singling out the ADL and APAC as apologists for Israeli apartheid. The mapping project itself has not returned multiple JTA requests for comment. For its part, BDS Boston continued to buck the national movement by supporting the mapping project on its own social media account, pinning its initial friends tweet to its profile page and retweeting support of the project from other activist groups. 
VDS Boston continues to feel that the mapping project is an important source of information and useful tool, organizing tool, the group said in its own statement Wednesday, while also stating that the group is its own collective that works autonomously from VDS Boston. Next from JTA, Nazi hunter Eli Rosenbaum tapped to head Department of Justice team investigating war crimes in Ukraine by Madeline Fixler. Eli Rosenbaum, a Justice Department veteran known for his work tracking and deporting former Nazis residing in the United States, will lead a team working to identify and prosecute people responsible for alleged war crimes in Ukraine. Attorney General Merrick Garland announced the appointment in a statement Tuesday while in Ukraine. There is no hiding place for war criminals. The U.S. Justice Department will pursue every avenue of accountability for those who commit war crimes and other atrocities in Ukraine, Garland wrote in the news release. Rosenbaum will lead the Department of Justice's War Crimes Accountability Team. Starting in 1979, Rosenbaum had led a team through the Office of Special Investigations, or OSI, that over decades deported more than 95 war criminals and their allies. Amid reports of war crimes by Russian soldiers as the invasion continues, Rosenbaum is expected to work with both domestic and international offices regarding crimes over which the United States has jurisdiction, including the killing of American journalists. Working alongside our domestic and international partners, the Justice Department will be relentless in our efforts to hold accountable every person complicit in the commission of war crimes, torture, and other grave violations during the unprovoked conflict in Ukraine, Garland added. The Vatican will release World War II-era Jewish files online, including unanswered pleas to the Pope by Andrew Lappin. Pope Francis has ordered 170 volumes of Jewish requests for help from the Catholic Church during World War II to be published online two years after making their physical copies available to historians. His decision is the latest development in the Vatican's newfound reckoning of its legacy during the Holocaust. The correspondence contains 2,700 files specifically recounting Jewish groups and families requesting assistance from the Vatican in avoiding deportation or trying to free relatives from concentration camps, both in the run-up to and during the Holocaust. Pope Pius XII, who served as Pope during the most pivotal years of the war, is often charged by historians with ignoring Jewish pleas for help and cozying up to Hitler and Mussolini in order to preserve the influence of the Church. The Vatican itself has long insisted that Pius XII should be celebrated for secretly advocating for Jews via diplomatic means, but that narrative is changing as more information about his papacy has been revealed to the public. The Church opened its secret files on Pius's archives to historians in 2020, but by publishing its Jewish-related files online, it opens them up to easier access and greater scrutiny by the public. The Pope at War, a new book by Pulitzer Prize-winning historian David Kurtzer, the son of a rabbi, draws on these new archives to make the case that Pius largely ignored pleas from Jews while keeping a secret back channel to Hitler. Pius did, however, concern himself with trying to save the small number of Jews who had converted to Catholicism or who were from mixed families, categories that were, were still considered Jewish under Hitler's racial laws. 
Paul Gallagher, the Vatican's foreign minister, wrote in a church newspaper that the digital release of the files was also intended to help provide closure to the descendants of Jews who had implored the Vatican for help. Next from JTA, a fifth Israeli election in three years. Here's how we got here and what happens next by Gabe Friedman and Ron Campeas. It has become a common refrain. Israel is heading towards another national election, a whopping five times since 2019 to be exact. On Monday, Prime Minister Naftali Bennett and Foreign Minister Yair Lapid, the two men who had cobbled together a historically diverse coalition to oust Benjamin Netanyahu from power a year ago, announced that they will help fast-track a bill to dissolve the Knesset or Israeli parliament. New votes will likely be cast in October. Many readers have had the same questions. Why does this keep happening? What happens next? Could Netanyahu make a comeback? And here are some answers. Why are Bennett and Lapid calling for new elections? The short answer, they have lost their parliamentary majority after multiple politicians defected from their coalition. The government, formed almost exactly a year ago, had a shaky foundation from its start, combining a slew of parties that historically would have not worked together. Bennett and Ayala Chaked's national religious Yamina, Lapid's centrist secular Yesh Atid, and the left-wing Meretz and the Muslim Arab Ma'an. As soon as the new government was in place, lawmaker Amachai Shikli quit Bennett's Yamina party to join the opposition, citing the presence of Meretz and Ma'an in the government. That gave the bennett Lapid government a 61-59 to 59 majority, which lasted until April, when Edith Silman, also in Yamina, quit because of a court ruling allowing families to bring food that was not kosher for Passover into hospitals. That made it 60-60. The final blow came as the result of behind-the-scenes maneuvering by former Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, who has been leading the Knesset opposition and whose veteran politician Wiles had helped him remain Israel's leader for a record 12 years. Netanyahu, who reportedly had been meeting with the Amina members to try and lure them away, seized the opportunity to create a crisis. Normally, he and his Likud party would vote to extend Israeli legal protections to Jewish West Bank settlers, but Netanyahu realized that he could anger Yamina politicians by helping to tank the measure, which has been passed repeatedly since just after the 1967 Six-Day War. Without Likud votes and the votes of coalition members on the left who opposed the occupation of the West Bank, the extension did not pass infuriating Yamina members and other right-wing politicians in Parliament. It was the ultimate example of an issue that split the coalition's diverse parties into polls that could not be reconciled. Nir Orbach, another Yamina Knesset member who had been twisting himself into Hamlet-worthy knots since the coalition's launch, finally defected. That left a 59-member coalition, an unstable number in the 160-seat Parliament. Why does this keep happening in Israel? In a proportional representation system, no one party usually musters enough of a president, uh, presence to lead a government on its own. 
parties and sometimes political rivals need to come together to form coalitions that agree to work together to pass legislation. There's often just one ruling coalition and one opposition coalition. For years, Netanyahu's conservative coalition defeated any contenders, usually a mixture of liberal and more centrist parties, pretty soundly. But by 2019, Netanyahu had alienated some more traditionally conservative voters and some of his political allies after being indicted on multiple corruption charges, being seen as beholden to Haredi Orthodox demands, and through a perceived imperiousness and willingness to shatter norms to stay in power. The schism gave centrist and liberal parties led by former Israel Defense Forces Chief Benny Gantz an opportunity to challenge Netanyahu's reign. The final voter math, though, led to repeated deadlock. Neither the Netanyahu or Gantz coalitions could eke out a firm majority. As the COVID-19 hit in 2020, Gantz said the pandemic required sacrifice and agreed to a unity government with a rotating prime ministership. Netanyahu dissolved the government before Gantz got his turn. By last year, many politicians across the spectrum could not contemplate another minute of Netanyahu in power. Bennett, who made his name as a staunch settler supporter, and Lapid, a former TV anchor who is liberal on social issues but more hawkish on military issues, formed a historic coalition that included a majority Arab party for the first time. Israel is not the only country with a parliament that has failed to form a government. For example, Italy has long been plagued with similar issues, but the vast array of conservative parties combined with Netanyahu's polarizing modus operandi has made the proposition particularly difficult in Israel. So what happens now? Netanyahu, who has been champing at the bit for a chance to return to power, has immediately gone to work. In fact, the aforementioned Orbach chairs the Knesset's procedural House Committee, and the Times of Israel reported that he is using his discretionary powers to delay the dissolution of Parliament for a few days so Netanyahu could potentially form an alternative government based on Parliament's current makeup without a need for new elections. Netanyahu currently controls 55 of the Knesset seats. Netanyahu getting to the 61 he needs is unlikely, however. Six members of the opposition are in the Arab-majority Joint List Party, and as frustrated as they were with the Bennett-Lapid configuration, many Arab lawmakers reviled Likud and Netanyahu even more. Additionally, the folks who hated Netanyahu, well, they still hate Netanyahu. Gideon Sa'ar, who leads the six-member right-wing New Hope Party, told Army Radio that there was no way he would join a Netanyahu-led government. I won't, I won't be bringing Bibi back, he said. All of the party members are with me. Lieberman, who heads the secular right-wing Yisrael Batenu Party, which has seven members, wants to go further. He is determined to pass a law before the next elections that would keep anyone under criminal indictment from becoming prime minister. Even if that kind of bill becomes law, Netanyahu would still run, said Gidon Rahat, a political science professor at Hebrew University and a senior fellow at the Israel Democracy Institute. He could still lead the Likud party and then repeal the law should he cobble together a majority in the new Knesset. Israeli politicians are always changing the rules of the game, Rahat said. It's like changing the U.S. Constitution for every immediate need, something that you wouldn't imagine. Various Israeli TV channel polls show Netanyahu's bloc earning 59 or 60 seats if a vote was held right now. 
just short of the 61 needed for a majority. It's unclear what kind of group would reemerge to take Netanyahu on. Bennett is reportedly mulling a break from politics. Lapid's Yeshatid is polling at 20 seats. Gantz is blue and white at 9. And Yisrael Betenu at 5. What does seem most certain for now, Lapid will take over as prime minister in the interim caretaker government thanks to a clause written into his agreement with Bennett. Can Lapid be a transformative prime minister in just a matter of months? Probably not. It is true that Lapid will be the first center-left prime minister since Ehud Olmert left office in 2009. Lapid is committed to a two-state outcome and rode to popularity as an outspoken opponent of the role of the orthodox rabbinate in public life. As foreign minister, he has reversed Netanyahu policies, repaired ties with the American left, and cooled down relations with his, uh, European nationalists, which Netanyahu had strengthened. Nothing will technically prevent Levy, uh, Lapid from initiating bold sweeping moves before elections take place. Legal restrictions on care caretaker government do not kick in until after Election Day. But in the past, according to the Israel Democracy Institute's Asaf Shapira, Attorneys General and Israel's High Court have limited what interim governments can and can't do, citing norms that apply to lame duck administrations in democracies. Lapid said in his statement he will pursue a robust foreign policy and domestic policy. He is keeping the foreign minister portfolio and hinted that he will cast Netanyahu as a threat to democracy. Even if we are going to elections in a few months, the challenges we face will not wait, Lapid said in a statement. We need to tackle the cost of living, wage the campaign against Iran, Hamas, and Hezbollah, and stand against the forces threatening to turn Israel into a non-democratic country. Lapid will likely be in place as prime minister when President Joe Biden visits Israel in mid-July. It will be an occasion for Lapid to show how his government has moved past tensions with U.S. Democrats that flared when Netanyahu was prime minister. Could this affect Israel's stance on the Russia-Ukraine war? The reason for Israel's relative reticence in joining the U.S.-led isolation of Russia over its invasion of Ukraine has to do with security considerations which in Israel transcend politics. Russia, still present in Israel's region after assisting the Assad regime in quelling Syria's civil war, controls the airspace over Syria and Lebanon. Israel needs Russia's approval for its airstrikes aimed at keeping enemies such as Iran, Hezbollah, and Syria at bay. But Lapid, at least rhetorically, has been more outspoken than Bennett in condemning Russia for its war. How he positions himself on this issue in the early days of his short prime minister stint could be telling. And one more brief. Sarasota, Florida. A judge in Florida approved a $1.2 billion settlement just hours before the one-year anniversary of the residential tower collapse in Surfside June 14th, which killed 98 people. Condo owners will split the estimated $96 million in proceeds from the sale of the land where the Champlain Towers stood. Well, that's all the time we have this week for the Jewish News Hour. This is Marshall Weiss, editor and publisher of the Dayton Jewish Observer, and I thank you very much for listening.